Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. We're here today for a Requests for Startups AI edition. I'm here with Sean Burns and Shastri Mahadeo. Uh, me and Sean have been talking about doing this podcast for almost a year now. Guys, welcome to the prestigious, illustrious Village Global podcast. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Appreciate having me. Awesome. Why don't we begin with some introductions? Maybe you guys can talk about a little bit what you do and how you came up with the idea, given all the things that you could be doing with AI, how you came up with that specific idea. Sean, you want to start us off? Absolutely. So I'm Sean Burns. I'm the CEO of a company called Outlier. We use artificial intelligence to automate business analysis. So our platform does what a human analyst would do in terms of looking through all of your company's data, reporting to the executives about things that are changing, opportunities that are taken advantage of, or problems that are happening. I started the company about three years ago, back in 2015. Before that, I was a founder of a company called Flurry, which was the largest analytics and advertising platform for mobile apps, iOS and Android. We sold that to Yahoo uh, in 2014. So I've been doing this for a while. I went to grad school about almost 20 years ago for artificial intelligence, which really is machine learning, just statistical modeling and adaptive systems. And the crazy thing about that is 20 years ago, we joke about the stuff we were studying would never be relevant in our lifetimes. And now, lo and behold, 20 years later, I look like a genius for for having done that. So the, the impetus of Outlier came from my experience at Flurry. We were such a large analytics provider. We had about a half million customers around the world. And I met a lot of them uh, asking them, great, how can we help serve you better with all this data we're providing? And almost universally, every country I went to, every company I met with, the answer was, listen, I don't actually know what to look for. I have all this data. What am I supposed to look for in all this data? It's coming out of my analytic systems, my enterprise CRM, my payment systems. And Outlier was my attempt to solve that because I, I believe that the next generation of business intelligence was going to be about asking better questions. And the only way to do that was to automate it, right? To use artificial intelligence and apply it in new ways. And so it became my opportunity to kind of go full circle and bring my graduate work into the present day and kind of change the world in a new uh, way. And it turns out, you know, three years ago, people thought that was crazy. And now in 2018, it seems like a genius. And yeah. that's basically how startups go, right? Totally. I want to get to, if you weren't doing Outlier, how what other applications you would think about, you know, using AI for. But first, Shastri, would you like to introduce yourself and what you're up to? Yeah, hey, so I'm Sashri, the CEO, co-founder of Unicrate. So what Unicrate does is we essentially use AI for demand planning, specifically for consumer packaged goods brands. Uh, I ran a consumer packaged goods brand for about five years, which is how I ended up falling into uh, this company now. Brands typically struggle a lot with demand planning and forecasting because they're sitting on mountains and mountains of data that a person has to sit there, analyze, and try to figure out what the consumer demand or what the velocity of their product selling in the store means for their entire supply chain. Uh, so our tool essentially automates an entire process. So someone sitting in a demand planning role at the Kraft Heinz, for example, can just click a button within our platform and understand how much they should produce, how much raw goods they need to buy, or where they should store the inventory across the United States. And they click another button to make a lot of money. There's like two buttons. It's basically it's a great product. Exactly. Yeah, and, and we get a percentage off of that. Every, every click that they do, we get a percentage off of that. <laughs> Totally. Sean, if you had your skill sets, uh, your interests today in, t in 2018, and you can no longer work on Outlier, or Outlier was no longer a thing, how would you think about just like zooming out? 
where would you apply? I would, how would you think about what idea you might pursue? That's a good question. Let's take a step back. So what do I look for? Like if I'm going to invest my time in a startup company, which in my opinion is like nine to 10 years of your life, right? It's a long time. What does that have to have? What kind of characteristics does it need? Forget about AI for a second. So for me, there was, there was two or three big ones. One is it had to be a problem that got bigger over time, that in five years is going to be more important and more significant than it is today. Because you really want the winds of history at your back because so much is coming at you from the front right. of starting a company. You need that boost of history. And you're saying if it's too big now, it might be too crowded? No, it's just it has to be something. It, it can be big today. Like even business intelligence yeah. is big today. But my, my belief in outlier is the shift is happening away from reporting systems and dashboards to a world where businesses speak to you, for example. And how do you know it's going to get bigger over time? Because it's already Well, that, that becomes a bet, right? That, that's where the bet is. Like the early days of Flurry, we were in the mobile industry in 2005. That was the days of flip phones and Nokia feature phones and you know, even I didn't believe that the world was in a shift as far as it did with the iPhone and Android coming out. That was a happy accident. But really, you could see the winds of history picking up and you make a bet that it will be bigger. So it at least has to have that potential. The second part is that it had to be something that I found really interesting and got more interesting over time. Because I think a lot of founders, you'll start a business and it turns out you do most of the interesting work in the first year and then it's just execution. And frankly, like I, I need to be challenged. Like I do this because I like the challenge of it, the excitement of it. Um, and it had to be something that got more and more interesting the more you did it. So you didn't just solve the hard point up front and then just, right. you know, reproduce and, and roll it out. It had to be something that got more interesting the more you did it. And the third part, and this is kind of more optional. It had to be the kind of thing that the kind of people that I like to work with, the kind of com- customers I like to sell to, the kind of investors I like to work with wanted to be involved in. Cause life's too short to work with people you don't like doing things that you don't like. Yep. Then that's kind of a bonus for me. So when I think about AI, the thing that was exciting for me was I saw, there's an interesting inflection point that happened about four or five years ago where we haven't actually invented any new machine learning techniques in about 20 years. So that my textbook from grad school has every single algorithm that anybody is applying today. And it was a printed textbook because back then we didn't have ebooks or anything. Like everything is the same. And so what changed? Well, there was an inflection point where two things happened. Our accumulation of data hit an inflection point where we just started accumulating so much data because all these systems, all these SaaS tools became information, you know, spigots. The second part was the cost of compute went down so far that we could train those same models on orders of magnitude more, more data. And so an algorithm um, that I would have learned, you know, like Bayesian, um, you know, classification or even, you know, deep learning or neural networks back in 20 years ago, they worked pretty good, but not great. But the limit was because there's only so much data we had and so much data we could train and model on. Now there's no limit. And so all of a sudden you can build these AI systems across so many different industries. And so today I'm tackling business intelligence, something I saw firsthand at Flurry. But, you know, before I started Outlier, there was about a half dozen opportunities I looked at across a variety of spaces, ranging from manufacturing to, um, you know, even travel, even to personal finance, where operations where you used to have, have a human do it because it required decision making can be automated if you have enough data to put in these algorithms. And we do today. And it's kind of exciting, I think. It has to, though, be something that's radically shifting. Like I said, the winds of history are behind it. I'm not going to go out there and find an artificial intelligence application for paper newspapers. Like, that's just yep. not, that's not where I'm right. going, right? But if yep. you could find ways to, you know, better, there's a lot of companies out there that are optimizing content for websites and there's yeah. a whole suite of systems like that are doing supply chain optimization. There's so many opportunities. It's almost as if in the early days of the internet, every company could benefit from being online. Yeah. Cause there was functions that you could do better and quicker. That same is true of machine learning. There's every company can benefit from doing things faster and cheaper. The question is, you know, which are the ones that are interesting to you? Which ones have that kind of wind of history behind it? 
and which ones, you know, do you have the ability to tackle yourself? Cool. Sasha, how would you think about it if you weren't working on Union Crate? Yeah, that's a good question. I think if I weren't working on Union Crate, I would probably still be, you know, building my my brand that I had. But I think, you know, some of the things that Sean said, I, I do want to echo some of those things that I think a lot of when people think about machine learning or AI, uh, they sometimes think that it's just kind of flip a switch and everything's just going to magically work for you. And I think for me, we always knew the business problems that we were trying to solve at my company before this. We always knew the specific questions we were trying to answer and what type of data we needed to do to answer that. So I think without you know this this path in life that I took or this avenue that I, I explored using AI, we would have tried to solve it some other way, right? You know, we would have tried to just, you know, go back to our Excel sheets and try to create these random if-then statements to understand, like, what's what's actually going to happen. But I think, to, to Sean's point, you know, AI is something where you can't just turn in, turn on a button and it essentially works. You have to essentially tell it or train it on what data to look at and what questions it needs to answer so it can actually benefit your company. As a follow-up to that, I'll say this, that... About two two years ago or so, the AI hype was pretty strong. The problem was that you could sell somebody just by saying, this is AI, you should buy AI. In 2018, at least what I see is people don't buy AI, they still buy value. And AI becomes essentially, in some ways, you could think about it as a margin play, where you're providing a service, maybe it's the same quality as what humans did, or maybe it's even a little bit better, but the real value is the automation that lets you offer the same service for a fraction of the cost. So Allier, for example, our customers are going to be large public e-commerce companies, big travel businesses like airlines, businesses that have tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of employees. So they have the people to do this. But if Outlier can do the work of dozens of data scientists faster and more cheaply, it becomes enormously compelling for them because now you can do yeah, more with less. We, didn't, we don't even pitch AI right now, right, to our customers. Our customers only care about the ROI. You know, when we go in and talk to them, we say, look, you know, what this is going to do for you is going to automate all of the manual process that you're doing and give you an answer X amount of times faster, which they can quantify into a dollar mark for their business. So, you know, we don't ever have to say the term machine learning or ever have to say the term AI. We have to say this system is going to do X for you for your bottom line. And you, Shasha, you tell me if I'm wrong, but I'm curious, you're selling to businesses that are known for being late technology adopters, supply chain businesses. If you were to go there and pitch AI, do you think that would actually hurt you or would it help you? Oh, it hurts us. We went into Record and Keyser recently, the company that makes Lysol and all the, the hygiene brands. And, you know, when we started going down this rabbit hole of talking about machine learning and AI, it actually hurt the conversation where they were saying that this might be too advanced for us. But when we flipped the conversation and started talking about what this is going to do for their bottom line, what this means for the time spent doing a task, then they actually got excited about it. They didn't care about the AI part. They actually, it scared them away. They thought that they didn't need to do something this advanced. A simpler solution would solve it for them. We try to focus our conversation not on the fact that it's AI, it's machine learning, but the fact that this platform, this tool is going to automate a task or it's going to do it more accurately for you, which will then turn into more money for your business. So this is a good point because there's an interesting self-driving car problem in AI today where we all, obviously, early adopters, founders, we love technology. A self-driving car sounds awesome to us. Most people still today won't get in a self-driving car if there's not a person in the driver's seat. You've just been so conditioned to see a person in the driver's seat, it doesn't feel right. 
And so in Outlier, one of the lessons we learned very early is if we're going to give you an experience as if Outlier is a human analyst, it has to actually seem very real. And so, for example, our customers get an email in the morning from Outlier saying, hey, here's the insights out of your data that you need to know to do your job better. And that email comes from Carla or Chris. It's generated by our system. It's automated, but it comes from their account manager. And I have a customer uh, from an old school business, uh, very, you know, late adopter who for a while actually believed that, you know, Carla was sitting and getting up in the morning and writing that email. And it, in some ways it actually made it easier to adopt it, to believe there was a person doing the work in this, the self-driving car, fake driver in the driver's seat situation. It actually eases the transition to AI to believe there's a person there and then realize that, no, it's actually an automated system. Because then you can jump over that weird trust chasm where you don't need people to trust it yet. You just need them to use it. And then by say, by the way, it turns out behind the scenes, the Wizard of Oz was there all along. I agree with you. We do the same thing. We, you know, in our platform, we have, you know, like just random comments like, good morning, Steve, or, you know, you know, talk about things or show them prompts and the way a person would do it. So there's that comfort level just kind of sitting there. I see. So your software says, hey, Steve, you coming out this afternoon? There's like, actually, no, I have other plans. I can't go out with you. <laughs> I mean, that's our goal. Like, it's on our roadmap to be able to do that. So in case the person just kind of gets bored, they can have a conversation with the AI. <laughs> you know, I want to get into a few categories explore opportunities and challenges, but zooming out first, when does using AI make sense? When does it not make sense? What sort of litmus test for determining whether it does? Well, first, before we get any further, again, AI is a tool. It helps you solve problems. If you have a problem that has very little data associated with it, AI is not the solution. So if it's a new product in a new market where there is no data, then it's not going to help you. And so it has to be the kind of problem that this particular tool is well suited for. Those will typically be Problems where there's a lot of historical data, so you can train it on a lot of things that have happened. So interestingly enough, cryptocurrencies, for example, is often not a good example. There's just enough historical data to train something on it, uh, whereas stock market trading, actually, you can do quite a good job. There's many years, decades of data about them. It has to be something where there is actually value in higher efficiency, yep. which sounds silly, but it's actually not always true. There are actually many economies which are optimized for other things other than efficiency, and a lot of founders get very frustrated because they start companies to be more efficient at a certain thing where that's actually not rewarded in this particular activity. So it has to be something where they actually reward efficiency. So where's the place? Give me an example of a place where the efficiency isn't rewarded as much. In creativity, creative arts. So, for example, there's a whole series of companies that try to use AI to produce better ad creative, creative campaigns. What they didn't realize was the creative buyers they wanted to be part of that creative process. There was actually not a lot of value in handing it off to a computer because the actual payoff was really, I'm building a brand. I'm creating a manifestation of our company. It wasn't about, is it perfectly optimized? It was whether or not I have ownership of that output. There's a lot of other examples across. There's like the win and loss of Moneyball in, in sporting events and kind of things that are not always entirely governed by numeric performance where, you know, brand performance and fan, you know, happiness and things can be more important than the actual numeric wins and losses and those kinds of things. Uh, a great example of that was when Wayne Gretzky got traded from the Oilers to the LA Kings uh, in hockey years ago. On, numerically, it had the promise of everything happening. What it ended up doing was poisoning an entire generation of, of fans in Edmonton about the decision. So there has to be the kind of decision where you actually can be rewarded for efficiency. And that is actually true of most of the things we would do in technology because you, you don't use software for most of those, let's yeah. be perfectly honest. Was that like 20 years ago, by the way? Yeah, 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 yeah. 
almost exactly 20 years ago, a few weeks ago. I think last week it was 20 yeah. years ago. And that, cause I'm old, yeah. it turns out. <laughs> Time to get over. I it. mentioned I went to grad school 20 years ago. Remember that? Yeah. Let's pick up that part again. Make sure I feel old. That's good. That's good. I remember back when computers had punch cards in them. No, I don't. I was not that old. But the, the third part is if you have those three things, it's a great application if you can get the data. And this is the last part that most people leave out, which is how do you get the data you need to train your models? How do you get the data to actually have a system that you can get to the point where it performs better than a person? There are services that I know where you'll integrate the, the, the product with your company and it won't give you anything useful for three to four months. Imagine that as a sales pitch, right? You can integrate our software. You should buy it. And three to four months later, it'll totally work out for you. It's like buying, instead of buying a car, you buy a car's seed. That you plant in your yard and you water it and eventually you're totally going to get a car that you can drive. And like, it's just, it's very difficult. So how do you get the data? And that becomes the big problem. And why people keep talking about data being the new oil is that if you have the data to train these models, it's so valuable and it's so difficult to gather it. It's, you see all these large companies playing these meta games where Amazon launches Alexa. A lot of the reason apparently why was to gather voice data for training. Yeah, no, and I think, you know, that that's kind of one of the reasons I worry a little bit about some of the companies that just, you know, do this kind of like uh, machine learning as a service because I feel like a lot of companies will just, you know, start deploying these services and think that with limited data or with not knowing the right questions to ask, that it's just going to pop out this like magic answer for them. And they would just have like this bad impression of what AI or machine learning can actually do for their business. So I have a I have a theory about startups that I'm going to share with you, which I call Burns Law, which is very simply I've told Eric about this before. Basically, it, it Burns Law states that whatever your startup company does, it doesn't matter. It could be education tech, it could be metrics, it could be e-commerce. If you pivot more than twice, you're in ad tech. Right? Doesn't matter where you started. You're in after two more more than two pivots, you're in ad tech. Doesn't matter. And the reason is that you start doing something, the more you pivot, the more you're looking for whatever value you have, and typically it turns into data, and ad tech is how you generate value. But I have I'm thinking about the the corollary to Burns Law, which is that if you're a team of smart people and your company's failing, your first pivot probably is into machine learning as a service, because it's the thing you find to be most interesting. Like you love machine learning. You couldn't find a business use for it, but maybe somebody else can. And so you shift that whole whatever customer development process or lean methodology to your customers. You're like, you go figure out how to make money using machine learning. And that's why those companies all fail, is that they're essentially moving all the customer development to their customers, and that just doesn't work out. For sure. We're going to do a thought experiment. So us three are now equal partners at a fund focused on using this tool, AI. This is going to be a bad fund. I'm not going <laughs> to work called out Burn, well. Burns Law Ventures. Uh, <laughs> DLD. Oh, wait, we just pivoted into ad tech. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And we are, you know, entrepreneurs are coming to us and, you know, looking for ideas and opportunities. So let's, uh, and we're going to take categories one by one and talk about the opportunities and challenges within and, and opportunities to apply play AI or, or not to apply AI to them. So one, let, let's do fintech first. So you mentioned you were looking at ideas in personal finance. Where do you see, you know, Greenfield for, for opportunities and where do you say, Hey, that's just, you know, there's, there's no opportunities here. Run away. With fintech, you know, I think what some opportunities might be for there is just, I think from a, and this might be completely stupid, but I think from a people personal savings perspective, what Robin is doing, like an investment perspective, I, I think that, you know, we can use AI to help just the average consumer to understand how to manage their finances properly. I think traditionally AI has been used for enterprise and to, you know, help them to manage portfolios or to come to better like judgments on what they should invest in or how they should manage their portfolios. But what I have not seen is using AI to help people in their personal finances 
finance decisions where there's very small sums of money and how to optimize the very small amount of money that they do have for the, the most return on investment. I'm going to take it a step further. I think fintech is ripe for almost complete automation. It's a business where there's a lot of data and there's people doing things that people just are not good at. And so I'll expand fintech for a second to close insurance. People, there are still actuaries. People who are actuaries still have jobs in 2018. That fascinates me. These are people who are literally trained and take tests to do basic mathematical translation, statistical analysis. Computers are, are better, provably better than people at that. And actually there's, there's companies like Affirm that have realized this, that are now bypassing it. The problem is the institutional friction of the existing insurance companies is hard to get past. And so what are they doing? They're starting their own insurance companies. So you don't have to rely on the existing infrastructure. But even then, you need a reinsurance company. Well, a reassurance company has their own criteria. Regardless, you're going to squeeze all the people out. You know, Wealthfront and Betterment, these companies are squeezing out financial advisors. Stock trading has already had that squeezed out. We see the popularity of, you know, target date uh, funds. Basically, I think personal financial tech is going to have almost all of the personnel squeezed out of it through AI, and especially the new generation of millennials who prefer not to talk to people anyway. It's going to happen, and it's not that far off. Credit, too, by the way. I think credit's just amazing that in today's day and age, we have people sitting down with spreadsheets to figure out what your credit score is. I mean, come on. Let's be honest. That's crazy. Just get rid of credit credit cards altogether. There you go, Axel. I actually use Shastri's credit card for everything, so let's put that off for a little while. I haven't maxed it out yet. (laughs) Let's, Let's move into enterprise. Um, where you guys both spend a lot, a lot of time. What, what succeeds in enterprise? What doesn't? I think that today we're seeing a move across almost every enterprise vertical to more AI. I think that's partly driven by actual real material opportunity, but partially the big companies are scared to death. They're scared that machine learning and artificial intelligence represents a challenge to their existing moats. Salesforce, Adobe, the biggest enterprise companies are spending a lot of money buying artificial intelligence startups, and that's not a coincidence. They know that if they can't figure out a story and an angle to essentially shore up their defenses there, they get run over because the the trend is significant. You think the cost of capital, the cost of people keeps going up, and the cost specifically of data-savvy people is going up. At the same time, there's an enormous amount of competitive pressure in the enterprise to get more efficient over time, driven partially by Amazon and Google and these big enterprises that are natively data savvy. Uh, I think the big opportunities in enterprise that haven't been tapped into yet about AI, a lot come down to people management. There's a lot of really interesting opportunity in figuring out the efficiency of people. Where do we actually need to allocate resources? Those kinds of things that just haven't been tapped into. We still rely on the gut intuition of leadership these days. Whereas marketing has almost entirely been taken over by AI. It's very hard to find any marketing function that is not at least informed by AI, if not driven entirely by it. So you have this gradient. On one side, you have marketing, which is almost all, all the way there. And the other, other side, you have HR, which is basically 0% of the way there. And in between, you have this gradient that goes over where there's a lot of opportunity. So for example, the finance team has not been largely AI-driven, but is becoming more so as, as these fintech opportunities become more available to them. Whereas in a lot of these enterprise companies, supply chain is getting optimized because it's, it's A, it's expensive to find operations research people to optimize your supply chain. But B, Amazon has already turned into a science. And if you, yours doesn't come to science really fast, your margins go away overnight. And so the motivation is significant across the entire enterprise spectrum, I think. Yeah. And, and I think the motivation more, you know, recently, you know, previous years has been more on how do we make more money using AI, which is why a lot of it's been in marketing and ad tech. But I think now what I've, what we've seen is a switch where people are 
concerned about their bottom line and how to use AI to kind of, you know, go through the weeds and understand how they can increase their margins rather than how to increase their sales. And the answer is easy. You just buy Outlier and Union Crate and you're good to go. I mean, it's very simple. I'm so glad you mentioned that because that was my exact same thought. Are there business functions that you feel remain, haven't been disrupted yet? Or do you think, hey, it's, things have been pretty saturated? Well, I'll tell you, this is an area where Shastra and I may actually disagree, which is important. Yeah, we'll please. find out. I still think that predicting the future is more art than science. Predicting the future is so hard in today's business world because there's so many variables. Like we work with some very large consumer businesses where there's over two dozen different factors that might affect things. Everything from the weather to, you know, school schedules in local districts, basically when the kids go back to school that it's so hard to understand the world well enough to predict the future well. Yeah, I, but I, I would disagree with you on that, though. Well, I disagree that you're not going to disagree with me, and therefore we disagree. I was going to say, like, but executive decision-making, because it requires a model of the future, it's it's going to be a while before I think that can happen. Now, can it ever happen? I do. I think it can. I think there is nothing in the world that's not knowable. And therefore, there's nothing in the world that cannot have data about it. And therefore, we can build systems that will be able to not perfectly predict, but but pretty well predict where things are going. But I don't think that that's today. And there's actually a whole world of analytics called prescriptive analytics, which the goal is to not just tell you what's happening, but tell you what you should do about it. Yeah. And that's largely never succeeded because of how hard it is to both predict the future and understand the business well enough to do that. So predicting the future, I think, is where we start to break down. Is, is your disagreement just a matter of timing? Like you think we will, we're just not there yet, and he thinks we're there now? Or No, we actually agree. We're just – I'm trying to disagree with him, get a little little conflict going here in the podcast. You know how that is. So I, I agree with you that we're not there yet, but I do disagree that I think we will get there because I think people and actions are predictable, right? People are driven by situations and circumstances. I think if we can really understand all the possible – things that drive a sentiment in a person or what drives an emotional decision for someone, we can more than likely predict what they're likely to do if the situation if they were placed in a situation or placed in this kind of emotional state. So I agree with you that we're not at the position now, maybe and not for the next five years where we can really predict what someone's going to do. But I think with the type of information like we at Unicrate now and I'm sure you at Outlier collecting now, that we can start to analyze what is causing a person to do something, what situation driver, what kind of sentiment is causing them to do a specific task. But I feel like there are so many variables that it is going to take a very long time for us to understand that, but I think it is possible. Well, here's a contrarian view. I actually think what will happen in the future is we will find it's easier to remove the humans than try to model the humans. And so if you remember the uh, the new automated Go platform, the one that finally was able to beat the Grandmasters and playing Go is a game, it's a very complicated game. It's historically, we thought it was going to take a long time to have systems get good enough at Go to beat humans. Chess, obviously, that happened years ago, but Go is orders of magnitude more complicated than chess. But we it happened. And how did it happen? It turns out that computers found a way to play Go that's entirely different than the way we play Go. They didn't get better at Go by getting better at the way humans play Go. They invented an entirely new way of playing Go on their own, which ends up being superior to the way that we play Go. And I think that is what you're going to find as we start adopting this more. These systems will do things differently than people, and it will be easier to remove the people and try to model them. Just let the system find a new and better optimized path forward. Yeah, that's super interesting because I I think I, I can see that 
I can see that point because you find even see now that people are looking for advice on how to make a decision, right? So if they might have something telling them, hey, because of you feel this way or because you live this certain lifestyle, you should buy these X amount of products or do these things. And, you know, people might look to AI to make a decision for them, which will then be predictable. Do you have another fundamental disagreement? I don't think so. We get, we need to work on this. We should have agreed on some disagreements ahead of time. <laughs> Let's get into healthcare. Shasha, where do you think you know, big opportunities there are? So I have to go to I, – I, I ripped my finger open a couple of days ago, and I have to go to the doctor – you know, to, you know, just for him to check on me and answer certain questions. I feel like if I go to a doctor and tell him my symptoms and he's just basically prescribing something for me based on what I tell him, then what is he really, what's really the, the science between those basic everyday kind of healthcare decisions? If I were, I'm not, again, I'm not saying, I'm not talking this in a very granular basis. I'm talking very macro, but you know, for predicting what kind of like, if what kind of infection you have or, you know, if you have a flu or if you have the common cold, I think that's something an AI can tell you based on your your feelings, I guess, if that makes sense. Uh, that's not even that out there, right? Even today, just human radiologists are being replaced by computers which are provably better. And so there's a lot of argument that what we see today is the last generation of human radiologists in, in medicine. And I, so I think that's happening. The interesting thing I will challenge you on that, this may be an area we disagree on, is I think that the best user experience for a human will always be another human. It will just always will be the case because we're genetically engineered to understand each other, both the explicit way we talk, the undertones of our voice, the nonverbal cues that we give. We will always be the best user experience for each other. So as long as a human has to be in the system, there's an element of having another person which has an advantage. So in the case of medicine, it won't be about the decision. It'll be about the comfort the patient has in talking about what's wrong, right? Because it's one thing if you cut your finger. If you have like an STD, right? Like who do you feel comfortable talking about that? Or you have a life-threatening cancer diagnosis. You could, in theory, have a system that automates through all the different permutations of treatment options and chooses the best one. But if you don't talk to somebody about it, will you really feel comfortable with it? So the question is, how many, how many different applications do you need to have a human in the loop for? And those like care, for example, will probably always be something where there is a need for a human for that user experience element and areas where you don't need a person. I think you'll see them disappear. Well, unless the AI can simulate a person better than a person. And, and maybe they are right now. I mean, people can't see me. There's no actual proof I'm a person. All right. I, I agree with you, Sean. You, you get that one. But in terms of talking about a business where a lot of the problems go beyond technology, yeah, that has a lot of regulatory problems. Like, how do you even get the data in the first place? Like, doctors don't want to be replaced. Are you working with them? Like, do you see entry points in terms of where you would start in terms of a first use case or first product in healthcare? I think, you know, to, you know, to what, uh, you know, Sean enlightened me on, um, I think what one might be interesting is just, you know, an assistant, a digital assistant for doctors to collect this information. So where a doctor would essentially uh, and this is an idea if anyone's listening, um, where as an, a doctor is, you know, talking to a patient and they're, you know, writing down their thoughts or their diagnosis, the system would learn from what that situation is, what the patient actually said and what the doctor diagnosed the patient with. So I think that may be a great way to learn this information. And also, rather than replace doctors, as, as you were mentioning, would assist them in the future so they can make these decisions faster or just augment the decision process to have a more accurate diagnosis. I will say this about, I, obviously I'm not an expert in the medical care system, but I will say that there's, there's, there's actually like treatment 
which today is actually fairly well automated. If you've been to a modern hospital, the kind of technology they have access to for treatment is really good. But I think Shastri mentioned the diagnosis is harder. And there's an interesting, there's two ways to think about diagnosis. You can try to go through the healthcare system. You can try to convince Kaiser Permanente to adopt your new diagnosis system. And good luck with that. Most startup companies I know go out of business during the trial process with hospitals because the trial process can take years, let alone the actual sales cycle. But there's an interesting other opportunity that I think is not as well exploited, which should be, which is people put off, we all put off so much digital exhaust every day, right? In the form of the data we generate just informally living our lives. And Apple did a great thing with the Apple Apple Watch, which is they used part of that, the heart rate profiling, to say we can predict cardiac events. They didn't have to go through Kaiser. They didn't have to go through anybody. They had the data. The data exhaust was there. We generate you know, our pulse every second of every day we're alive. And they use that for better diagnosis. Does it replace the doctor? No, but it allows you to take a step forward. You can harness so much of that digital exhaust for medical care, for diagnosis, to find these things. There was a great example from the Apple Watch of somebody who diagnosed themselves as having a pulmonary embolism. I mean, that's the kind of thing that can kill you because you don't know what you're looking for. And I think that is the the area that in, in medical care diagnosis is the most exciting for me because it's the most accessible for a founder that doesn't already have huge relationships. It's hard in the treatment industry, unless you're part of a large pharmaceutical, large hospital chain, to get the kind of FDA trial approval, to get the data to do these things. But in the data exhaust world, I mean, it's basically there's this stuff is literally just going into the ether today. If you can capture it and repurpose it, there's probably no shortage of things you can do. Talked about fintech, enterprise, healthcare. What are the sectors do you think BLV should be focusing on? So I like to think about the physical world as a good metaphor for opportunity, because I think in the digital world, no matter what you decide to do, if you want to, there's so many SaaS to manage SaaS businesses out there, it's going to kind of ridiculous. And so let's think about non-pure digital businesses, because I think those would be less obvious. Uh, in the construction industry, the only application people have come up with for AI so far is predictive maintenance, predicting when your large-scale machinery is going to fail. But we've been talking about that for like a decade. Come on. There are better ways to think about it. For example, the HVAC systems and buildings, consistent, can they actually be more efficiently run and save energy if it's not a person turning a dial, if it's a system that's automatically optimizing itself based on the cost of power, based on the, the temperature, the weather, these things. Can you optimize construction projects, right, by actually doing a real supply chain on the materials that are going into the project? There's so many different applications in terms of building houses and buildings that aren't just predictive maintenance that haven't really been tapped into yet. Because again, it's a data problem. How do you get enough data to do it? Likewise, on the manufacturing side, what amazes me today is almost every product we buy, including those Apple products that are so fancy, are assembled by a person at a desk with a soldering iron. And I'm not saying we replace that person with a robot, but think about all the aspects of that process that could be improved through better automation. There's actually a really interesting company called Instrumental, which has a system that you can install on that, that assembly line, which has cameras, and it just watches. And they use machine learning to identify when something was assembled slightly incorrectly as it happens. So now, previously, you'd build a bunch of stuff, you'd send it to QA, QA would test it, and like 10 or 20% of it wouldn't work, and you just throw it away and just keep going. But now if you can know when it doesn't work as it's happening, that 10 to 20% can become 1% to 2%. And that's amazing progress. So I think the physical world, there's so much capability of improving what we do in better ways. And self-driving cars are like a stupid obvious. And self-driving trucks are probably a better obvious example where a self-driving truck can drive all night. 
In fact, it can drive only at night to reduce accidents. It can drive without worrying about stopping for fuel. It can worry about drive without worrying about stopping for food. And in doing so, it can make delivery and logistics safer, faster, and more predictable in a way that, you know, is it back in the physical world? Yeah, there's a, there's a company also called uh, Pillar Tech. Uh, and what they do is that they build sensors that are deployed in construction sites. Construction sites, a lot of, there's always, you know, fires or, or you know, hazardous things that happen that can be de- detected by one of their sensors. So I think what's interesting to your point about using it after the physical world is, you know, what they can do in the future, what they plan to do in the future with this is to really understand and predict what situations can cause a fire, cause an issue in a construction site, which can delay the projects by months and months and cause the builder huge amounts of money and also insurance providers right it can help them to understand what type of situations are going to cause a fire or cause mold or something like that when they're building a lot of these big commercial buildings even the uh, residential buildings so i think those are one of the companies that i found pillar tech that essentially is using ai for the physical world so actually that's a good question i have for you shastri is how long is it before suppliers and people in in these businesses start to demand your data in, in order to service you. So today, for example, if you're a supply chain provider or you're a wholesaler, you need to, you need evidence that you know the retailer is actually going to sell the product, right? You need evidence. You you demand things like insurance or buybacks or things that you don't end up that hole in the bag. Same thing with 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 construction. Your insurance company is asking for certain qualifications that this insure this project is going to be successful. At what point do they start demanding the data from you? They don't trust you anymore. You have to give us the data. And I think we see we, we see some signs of that in, in retail, right? So, you know, retailers now, they charge the brands a fine if you don't uh, control your inventory levels in the stores properly. So that's why you find a lot of stores is going to essentially give you point-of-sale data so you can understand what you should send to them. And I think, you know, you'll, you will start to see in the future where brands are going to say, great, you're going to fine us if we're – not controlling the stock levels in your store properly before we even put the product in the store. We want to know if you're actually going to sell the product. And I, and I think we're not too far off from being there because you already see signs of that. And, and to your point about the insurance providers, yeah, I 100% agree. I don't think that the insurance providers for construction is going to ask a builder for their data. I think what's probably going to happen is these companies like Pillar will create relationships with the insurance companies ahead of time so they can just factor in these sources or maybe force them to have sensors to reduce their policy. And so generally that then I think becomes the best opportunity for founders in AI. It is building these kind of toll booth businesses where you're using the data to, let's say for back up it over to audit performance in a, in a system that requires trust, because in that audit, you're accumulating all the data you need in a way that isn't biased. It isn't sampled. Because if we went to say, we want to go into retail and we got all the data from Walmart, that's great, but that's Walmart's data. Is that really reproducible anywhere else? I'm going to go out on a limb and say probably not. But if you can find these businesses where you're essentially a toll across many different players in a bigger industry, the data set you can accumulate that you can then train things on to do whatever you want is enormously compelling. I mean, it's a lot of why Amazon runs their marketplace. They knew that their own internal systems would always be the best. But it would always bias what they were learning. And so, therefore, if you can expand your umbrella to a data set that's much bigger, that's where those businesses are. And if you can do that today, in five to ten years, you're going to be unstoppable. Because nobody – this is the yeah. thing about data people don't realize. You can't go back in time and get it. If you don't start recording it today, you won't have it in five years. So, But if you start recording it today, that means in five years you have a five-year head start 
which in frankly in the world of venture and tech that's what we dream of we dream of a of an actual barrier to entry i mean obviously i'm not a professional investor like eric but i do some angel investing and the hardest thing is most tech companies really have no defensible barrier to entry they just don't i mean let's be perfectly honest if you had a bunch of smart people who had the focus and the interest they could probably reproduce a lot of these businesses and eventually if you grow big enough you build defensible advantages through technology or through data or through channels or something but if you think about it, if you start today, then you're accumulating that rarity of a true differentiated sustainable advantage, which is why for I don't understand why in 2018, or I, I would prefer not, that Experian and all these companies have a lock on the credit score market. But why do they? Because they have all the historical data and all the connections that keep gathering the data every day. So if we wanted to start a credit score company today... We would have to go out and create all the relationships to suck in all the data. We'd have to build up histories of people to score them, which is why you see the people in the credit business are, are, are choosing very precise and specific opportunities like point of sale lending, things where you're limiting the, the exposure area so you don't need as much data. But those companies are horribly run, as we know, because Experian, they lost all of their data, which is the only business they were in, the only thing they had to do. And they still couldn't protect it. So clearly there's an opportunity in that. But like, if you think, if you find an industry that in five years is going to be important, you start recording the data today, you end up in a world where, Hey, listen, I'm sitting on a gold mine. It's just going to keep appreciating. Yeah. And are there other things for you that come to mind that you say, Hey, this is just my, my Sean, my bet that in five years is going to be a lot bigger than it is now that it's sort of like we made that leap with Flurry. That's hard because I think about the world more in terms of problems. So let me, let me phrase in terms of yeah, problems that sure. I think have to be solved. Yeah. I think that the, the savings inequality has to be solved in terms of the amount of money people have versus how much they need to have to survive and frankly retire is it, is an inequality and a disequilibrium that has to be resolved. And frankly, if it doesn't get resolved some way smart, it's going to happen through societal change. It just yeah. is not sustainable the way it is. And so there are there ways to get people to save more. There's a bunch of people trying stuff out there right now, but something has to give. That's an inequality, a, a problem that has to be resolved. It just can't sustain. I think the second is the cost of food. People don't realize the cost of food is almost entirely governed by the patents on the sea lines that go into growing food. And so the companies that own those patents almost perfectly decide how much food costs in the country today. Because not only Monsanto, those kinds, there's a lot of them actually, but basically, if you're a farmer, people don't realize this. If you buy seeds from these seed lines, and you have to because the buyers will only buy crops grown with certain seed lines, you grow those crops and you harvest those, those, those crops, you then have to give the seeds back to the people who you bought them from. You can't keep them. There's no like, we imagine farming, like I, I grow corn and then I harvest corn and I plant more corn from that. That's not how it works today. But that means that the cost of food in a lot of countries is unsustainable. So how do we fix that, right? Is there a solution to that problem that can feed the next 3 billion people, the next 2 billion people? So hopefully something is out there. And I think behind all of these, is it obvious where the machine learning solution is? Probably not, honestly, because I think all great problems for founders start that way where there's no obvious solution. Because perfectly, I mean, you're an investor, Eric. If there's an obvious solution to something, someone's doing it. And there's a reason why it didn't work, right? There has to be. And so but the problems like these that are so big, there's no obvious solution. That's where the next billion dollar businesses. Yeah. Are there spaces that you think are underexplored that you want to see more or, or even data sets out there that, that are unstructured, but you think, wow, there's probably some gems there that you want to go see people pursue? 
that we haven't yet discussed? I think farming's one. You mentioned that already. Farming is one huge data source that hasn't fully been explored yet. So, like Shashri said, the simultaneously as we've seen this decrease in processing compute power uh, costs for the fueled AI, the other thing that's happened is the cost of sensors has gone to like nothing. Like the cost of sensors is like essentially free. It's bananas. People don't realize how big a deal that is. 20 years ago, I was working in a robotics lab and we were talking about putting sensors to like measure the wind and temperature. And like the most you could deal with is maybe a dozen in a field. Cause we had to go like solder them together and they were expensive parts and everything. Now you for like five bucks, you could put tens of thousands of sensors in a field. And so the things you can do with near perfect information are profound because traditionally speaking, machine learning was developed and statistics was developed because you had samples of data. You had to take a sample of data and estimate what the whole population was was talking about. In fact, ironically enough, the census is one of the only times we actually have census-level data. It's appropriately named. And so what happens now if now the cost of having perfect data is not as high? And having perfect data is a holy grail because then I don't need fancy math. Like I could take the most basic machine learning system if I had perfect data and roll it out. And all of a sudden, boom, you can do things that were never possible before. Yeah, totally. You mentioned travel earlier. Was there a space within travel or a problem that you're excited about solving? Well, I think travel is the value proposition of outlier is that if you have massive amounts of consumer data, tens of millions of touch points a day, how do you really know what's changing? Right. How do you know about those emerging shifts in consumer purchasing behavior? How do you know about the problems that are erupting in terms of competitive tactics? And a lot of the businesses that we work with are businesses where you, ha- the sooner you know this is changing, that, you know, teens are buying things differently or people don't like this kind of shoe anymore or in travel, the weather shifting. And so people are not buying flights to sunny places as much. The sooner you know that, the more of a competitive advantage it becomes because the time, there's an interesting inequality that exists in a lot of large consumer businesses. It's not true of tech, but of large non-tech consumer businesses, which is the length of time it takes them to act on knowledge is fairly long, right? So let's say you're an, you're an airline. And you realize that buying behavior is changing. People want to fly to California more than they used to. How long does it take you to schedule new flights to get FAA approval, get new terminals set up to have more flights going to California? You could take quarters, right? Maybe years. So the sooner you know, the sooner you get started on that problem. And so a lot of what Outlier offers to industries, and this is true of travel, obviously, is the ability to know as things are emerging instead of months or quarters later when it becomes almost too late to act. Guys, it's been a pleasure. Where can people find you, uh, more about you on the internet, and any last advice to entrepreneurs out there who are building businesses using using AI? Solve a real problem. Don't build AI because it's AI. Solve the actual business problem. It would be my one advice. Awesome. And so, yeah, you can, uh, you can find me at companies outlier.ai. You can find me on Twitter at S Burns, S-B-O-I-R-N-E-S. Um, my advice to you as founders has nothing to do with AI. It's just, listen, founding companies is hard. It's hard every day and it's much harder than you think it'll be. And there'll be dark days when you wake up and you're like, this is hard. And why is nobody else struggling the way that I'm struggling? And the answer is everybody's struggling. It's hard for everybody. Never let yourself fall into that, that school of thought that you think that somehow you're doing it wrong because it's hard. It's hard for everyone. And at some point, you know, you just have to realize that this is a difficult thing to undertake. It is, there's no easy button. Yeah. Guys, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot. Thank you, guys.
If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst.